podcast. I'm Luke Chow. It's May the 1st, 2020. Joining me here is Bruce Anderson, founder of Turn On Toronto and Toronto Hypnosis Explorers. And today we're discussing a little known but fascinating application of hypnotic technique, erotic hypnosis. Please be advised that this episode contains a candid discussion of a sexual nature, even though it is going to be a tasteful discussion, it is a candid discussion of sexual themes. Bruce, it's good to have you on here today. Thank you, Luke. It's good to be here. Um, In addition to the introduction that I just made, can you give our listeners the inside scoop about yourself your career, including your career before you got into hypnosis, if you wish to share anything about that, um, as well as how you discovered the more sensual applications of hypnosis. Right. Well, I I, I won't go into great depths. My resume is too long. But uh, I started out in the technical world, uh, programmer, manager, program manager, project manager, uh, I retired uh, back in the early 2000s, uh, and back in the 70s, while I was still working, I went in and started studying NLP. That was in the days when Bandler and Grinder had were just promoting it around the country, and I got in. I was part of the first class in Toronto went through that. I spent so a good 15 years taking vast numbers of NLP courses, eventually got a, a master practitioner certification. That was This was back years before you could do it in a weekend. Hmm. Um, the One of the things back about in 1985, there was a workshop that uh, Richard Bandler held in Boulder, Colorado on hypnosis. So that was my first formal uh, introduction to hypnosis beyond just playing you are getting sleepy as a kid with friends Mm -hmm. that had no effect at all. Um, I went on from there. After I retired, I started to take it very seriously. I studied. uh, um, Oh, I did. I worked with uh, Hugh Comerford in his NLP program, realized I wanted hypnosis. I found, uh, I signed up for Mike Mandel's Architecture of Hypnosis, an NGH certification program. Uh, And before all of those came around, I discovered Mark Cunningham and his new curriculum and got the, got the videos and studied them intensively and learned a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And when he opened up the Renegade project, uh, I signed up before I knew what it was. Mm-hmm. I said, this guy, this guy is great. I love the stuff he does. He's got uh, a wonderful spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, and he works with something called conditioning with pleasure, which is a lot of the basis of what I do and mm-hmm. call erotic hypnosis. I started uh, exploring as anywhere I could. I started up uh, literally, I took my uh, NGH training, followed by Mark's, followed by Mike Mandel's course. And in Mike Mandel's course, after the work I did in 
uh, way back in the NLP world percolated through my mind. I didn't do any active NLP coaching, but I did have 20 years of management work after that. And obviously the concepts were percolating through my mind and, 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 uh, conditioning how I saw the world and how I interacted with people. Because when I took Mike's course, uh, people would ask me, where's your clinic? Hmm. And I would say, clinic? What clinic? Hmm. I don't have a clinic. Uh, and so the, and uh, uh, one, of the, one of the people there invited me to come do hypnosis at her clinic. Mm -hmm. uh, which I started doing. I also started up Toronto Hypnosis Explorers. Mm -hmm. Our very first meeting was the week after Mike's program ended. Mm -hmm. And for three or four years, I did a workshop once a week out of my living room exploring hypnosis. Because the, the rule is, if you really want to learn something, teach it. Mm -hmm. So anything I wanted to learn, I said, okay, next week we're going to work on this. And that's how I got, I got better. I used, also used that as the opportunity to get clients. I wasn't ready to go set up uh, a, a real practice. I was retired and wanted to relax, but I also enjoyed hypnosis very much. So I did uh, about 500 hours of essentially freebie work uh, and got quite good. Mm -hmm. at working with people and creating change. I was going to ask whether you think that your background in management, in project management, in IT, in computer programming, benefits your hypnosis practice or whether you think it's something instead to overcome. I, my, my attitude towards who we are as people going through the world is that we're the sum of all of our experiences mm -hmm. and whatever we do adds to who we are and what we're capable of doing. Um, as, and hypnosis at a, at a heavy level is, is challenging because when I'm working with a client, I have to be in deep rapport and in trance. Mm -hmm. So I don't have the same kind of access to my logical mind that I do when, uh, you know, if I'm sitting at my computer designing a spreadsheet mm -hmm. financial model or something yeah. like that. Uh, so, but I have been able to take that ability to see the big picture, to understand how systems work, how people right. interact with them, how pieces fit together, and mold it into an approach to working with people. I mean, yeah. when this is, this applies to change work in general, not even just hypnosis, or or not certainly not just erotic hypnosis. There's goals we want to accomplish something. There's uh, people come with resources. They have, for example, if someone has been a dancer or a hockey player, I know ahead of time that 
if they've been seriously in that endeavor or an airplane pilot. There are certain things, characteristics of how they behave, how they mm-hmm. think, how they're used to functioning and interacting with authority figures mm-hmm. uh, and dealing with challenges in life that mm-hmm. I can assume about them. Well, what you're I doing take, is... Those are their resources. You're basically doing what I did to you, which is occupational stereotyping. I mean, it's fair to say that <laughs> lawyers have a better uh, developed critical mind than artists or painters. It's fair to say that actors are better at suspending disbelief than uh, accountants. Occupational stereotypes very often are relevant. Like all stereotypes, it's just a heuristic. It's never a perfect rule. But um, but yes, there's... Oh, yeah. But it's a place to start. Yes. And it gives me something to work with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most of the things, if someone comes in with, with a sexual challenge, uh, the underlying problem that I'm dealing with and doesn't usually have anything to do with sex. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's got to do with, I don't feel safe, I'm not worthy, are mm-hmm. the two biggies. Yep. Shame. The, the, just to take the second exactly. statement and put it into one word, it's, it's feeling ashamed. And there is a lot of shame and guilt around sex in our society. Um, my first or my next question is... If you ask me, the hypnosis world can generally be divided into three areas. One of them is hypnotherapy, which we're all familiar with, and another is stage hypnosis, which we're all familiar with as well. At least we've heard of stage hypnotists and stage hypnosis. But the unspoken and relatively um, surprisingly popular area of hypnosis is recreational or erotic hypnosis. Um, can you define or describe erotic hypnosis for our listeners, especially considering that the last couple of episodes were about stage hypnosis and hypnotherapy? Could you help to flesh out this third area of how hypnosis is applied? Sure. Well, first off, that approach to categorizing hypnosis, Mm -hmm. areas of hypnosis, identifies who is involved and what the motivation is. Mm -hmm. In hypnotherapy, you have a hypnotist and a client and a client is looking, typically looking for some sort of change. Mm -hmm. Uh, They may think that they're broken and want to be fixed or in rare occasions, they already know they're working fine and want to get better. Um, Stage hypnosis involves a hypnotist and an audience and the audit, the purpose of that, the motivation is to provide entertainment for the audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, recreational hypnosis and particularly erotic hypnosis is about fun. Mm-hmm. It's simply plain and simple. It's about having fun. And without an audience, um, without an audience, you don't need an audience. There's just, it's typically two people at a time mm-hmm. and it's plain fun. Now, 
there's a lot of pleasure involved and pleasure can people interpret pleasure in many different ways. That's the, the whole kink world is filled with people whose, I'll say, whose, whose interpretation of which sensations are pleasure and which are pain mm -hmm. don't match mine. Mm -hmm. But you know, that's, 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 that's what they like. Uh, I'll do what I like. Yes. Uh, I, I respect the difference. Well, so think, think of it like uh, some people love spicy foods and other people experience spicy food as painful. Some people like bitter foods like coffee or beer. Other people only like sweet beverages or, or sweet foods. So it's a matter of taste. There's exactly. no right. There's no wrong. There's no judgment if someone else's tastes are not the same as yours. Uh, please continue. Exactly. So uh, the way we get into the erotic side, of course, is... Frankly, sex is fun. Sex is exciting. It's a powerful and utterly primal human mm -hmm. emotion, need, drive. I mean, without, without sex, you and I wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. yep. The planet would not be populated. Mm -hmm. Everything we see around us is a a result of our DNA's propensity to replicate itself. Mm -hmm. So how do we get, how do we get to that? Uh, if we look, I'm going to, I'm going to digress a little bit into the neurology of the stuff. Uh, our brains are designed and, and this applies all the way back to pretty primitive creatures to have two primary motivations. One is move away and one is move towards. The move away, those things which cause us to move away, we created a word for that and we call it pain. And if we're if we anticipate pain, if we predict pain, we call that fear. But they're both they're both lumped together. Mm -hmm. uh, the amygdala is the organ of the brain that that yeah, it's more complicated than that. But if you want to make it simple, that mediates most of this stuff. The other response is move towards, and move towards we call pleasure things that we want. Pleasure and desire are related to move towards. And there's, there's lots of things that where I can go with that. But the, uh, the basics of erotic hypnosis is to take pleasure. Now, my viewpoint on emotions are that emotion, the building blocks of emotion are body sensations, that gnawing feeling in the pit of your stomach, sweaty palms, the flush in your neck or cheeks, all that sort of stuff, the tingle in your spine, those are the building blocks of emotion. And our body, our mind, which is an incredible pattern recognition engine, matches up and says, oh, I know that, I must be afraid or I must be in lust. Uh, and, and that's how we do. So when we talk about emotions, 
usually it's it's a very common occurrence that if you talk about a specific emotion uh, and I nod my head as if I understand what you're talking about, if we were to actually dig down to the sensations to where I knew exactly the sensations you were experiencing, we would discover that I, I might say, oh, yeah, I know that, but I call it something different. So that when we're talking about emotions, we're often talking at cross purposes. It, mm -hmm. the, there's a, a saying, as I do a lot of relationship work, and there's a saying that, that a, a myth that people believe, you can't possibly know what I feel. Hmm. Uh, and that, that's nonsense. It takes some effort to get there, but it is very possible. And once that understanding can be achieved, all sorts of fascinating things are possible from there. Mm -hmm. But taking the pleasure and playing with it, amplifying it. Hypnosis is an amplifier of emotion. Mm -hmm. And the emotions involved with sex, with love, with relationship are powerful and primal. They're the core things. And as, as I've mentioned to you on other occasions, it's my strong belief that sexual energy and life energy are one and the same thing. And that the, the conditioning messages we receive largely from uh, religions, major religions, but also from the, the political and teaching world, uh, try to tell us differently. Mm -hmm. I, I rebel against that and say, no, they're exactly the same thing. And this uh, insisting on separating them is what has created an awful lot of the shame mm -hmm. that you're talking about. Oh, if you experience motivation this way, that's good. But if you experience it that way, oh, that's bad. You're, mm -hmm. you're, that's a shameful thing. Okay. Well, what uh, kind of things can you do with erotic hypnosis? So building upon what you've just said, um, that you won't see in a hypnotherapist's office or a consulting hypnotist's office like, like my own. So behind closed doors, uh, in privacy, with a partner, with a consenting, loving partner, what kinds of things happen during erotic hypnosis? The Well, the, the first and easiest thing to understand is pleasure raw sexual pleasure. Uh, most people experience pleasure, sensual sexual pleasure in, in various ways, but those are sensations in the body. And once, as with any hypnosis session, there's a negotiation and consent. We talk mm -hmm. about what do you, what do you want to, are you, are you cool with this? Oh, I want that a lot. Great. Let's go for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, experiencing pleasure, making that pleasure stronger and stronger, uh, and building it up to the point that the most popular thing to go for is, oh, let's go for a hypnotic orgasm. Mm -hmm. Now, which is, which is a lot of fun, uh, but what we see, for example, if any of your listeners go and look up uh, erotic hypnosis or hypnotic orgasm on YouTube. It's, it's there all over the place. Mm -hmm. What you will see 
are film clips primarily of stage hypnotists who take uh, a highly responsive subject, uh, uh, mostly women, but uh, but there are men included in this as well. Mm-hmm. Men men can orgasm on command just as women can, mm-hmm. and hands free too. Uh, just hands free, and they can orgasm without ejaculating, mm-hmm. which is which for for the mess factor is important. Um, the uh, but it, it, it irks me that for the stage work, that's where they stop. Mm-hmm. And in a relationship, because while reproduce, reproduction of the species is the, is the primal biological imperative for sex, the reality is that in human existence, pair bonding is what happens, like in many other species. And humans tend to be pair bonded for long periods of time in general. What primarily women, but to a large extent men as well, want is connection. That feeling of powerful openness connection that that vulnerability of Mm. bearing your soul to another being accepted and acknowledged and loved for who you are Mm -hmm. well and i I just want to comment on that before we move too far on from the stage hypnosis example that you gave because if people do see stage uh hypnosis participants very loudly, very dramatically, very expressively having what looks like orgasms, you can't take that to be a real or a sincere experience. On stage, the hypnotist cares more about how the audience is being entertained. They don't really care about genuine, authentic experience. They don't really want connection with people they're going to stop talking to after the show's over. Whereas in the situation that we're describing during this episode, you um, might not see the loud, dramatic expressions you see on stage as much as the more subtle, nuanced, but authentic expressions and feelings of connection and warmth and love. So I I wanted to make that point before we move on. Sure. Yes. That's that's absolutely right. That's that's missing from the from the stage work. Mm-hmm. Um, one one of the things that I do, and in fact, I do this in all my sessions, uh, is I teach uh, because responses resources tend to be associated with call them moods, mental states. Uh, like they've done research studies where they take a bunch of college students and get them tipsy and have them memorize something. And then they give them a couple of tests a week later when they're completely sober and when they're tipsy. And by golly, when they're tipsy, they can remember what they learned when they're tipsy, but they can't remember it as well when they're sober. Mm -hmm. Um, Applying that principle, if I'm helping someone develop a resource, whether it's to kick a habit or to think positively, whatever it is, I want them to have access to that resource everywhere, Mm -hmm. whether they're wide awake and alert, whether they're scared, 
any no matter what's going on, I want them to have access to that. And this is very much true in the erotic realm too. If I'm building a powerful connection, I want that to be accessible all the time, mm -hmm. easily. So one of the things that I always do is to teach a uh, a trance state. The, the, the first one is the normal, relaxed, eyes closed, you know, go to sleep or whatever you say. Mm -hmm. uh, the next one is where their eyes are wide open. They can think and speak clearly, but are still in trance, and they're looking me directly in the eye. Because there's something about looking, eye gazing, looking directly into the eyes of another person, talking, that makes that connection way more powerful mm -hmm. and that's a piece that that is it's important all across the board because it allows resources to be available everywhere and it's an amplifier for erotic hypnosis because there's that sense of connection that's way stronger if i'm looking in directly into mm -hmm. someone's eyes versus they're sitting there relaxed with their eyes closed. Mm -hmm. It's just not the same. Well, there is sort of this, uh, at least in the public consciousness, there's a connection between gazing into the hypnotist's eyes and being under the hypnotist's spell or under their uh, under their trance. And I, I know that sometimes that creates the misconception that it is eye gaze in itself that creates a hypnotic state, but what you're saying is that when the when the, your partner is already in hypnosis, the eye gaze creates a deeper sense of rapport, of trust, of connection, a deeper sense of being present in the moment. Is that correct? absolutely yes, yes, and it it also provides me with with a mechanism for getting feedback because mm. when I'm doing erotic hypnosis, doing anything to do with experiencing sexual feelings, that frequently, because of the intense conditioning that we're being bombarded with since birth uh, around sexuality, there are all sorts of taboos and limiting beliefs, and the only way that this is allowed is this way, you can't do that, I can't do that, all of those things. Uh, it's very common that lots of these things come up. And I want to be able, if I see a moment's hesitation or something, I want to be able to have a conversation with the person uh, without having to bring them out of trance. I want to be talking uh, it, either directly with their conscious mind or as or unconscious rather uh, as possible so that I get feedback from them. You know, it's like one of the things I might ask a, a, a client right off the start is, you know, say I'm, I'm working with a, with, with a woman I've never, I've never met her before. She's interested. Oh, this stuff sounds really neat. What's, you know, what's hypnosis like? So I take her into trance, we talk, and I have her, as, as we agree ahead of time, she's accepting my suggestions, obeying my commands, and creating the most vivid internal reality she can from what I'm 
doing, mm -hmm. the commands and the suggestions. Uh, and then I'll ask her, uh, you know, one of what as a modern woman, uh, it's supposed to be taboo to be sitting there in a chair obeying the commands of this guy you just met. Mm -hmm. you know, how do you feel about that? And I, I, I ask that, I, I phrase that to, to sort of touch on the, the, the potentially negative sides on purpose so that if there's anything there, you know, it's like uh, in a sales pitch, you want to deal with the objections ahead mm -hmm. of time. And in, in, if we're doing hypnosis, I want to identify potential concerns before mm -hmm. they get big, mm -hmm. you know, it, uh, and most of the time, the response I get, oh, no problem. Well, here's the I thing. Quite, I quite enjoy it. Here's the thing. It's because the work you do is behind closed doors in private. If you were a celebrity doing this on television, if you were a stage hypnotist doing this on stage, the answer most likely will be quite different. But there are certain things that are acceptable in private, like all the sexual matters that we've been talking about, that we will right. continue to talk about. And then when you leave the front door of your home, your clothes are on, you've put aside your very personal opinionated beliefs when you talk to your neighbor, you're polite, and you know you, you conduct yourself differently in the public sphere compared to the private right. sphere. And I guess the woman, like the typical woman you're talking about, even if they are in the public sphere, very accomplished, very intelligent, very in charge, in the private sphere, they might choose to be a very different person. And I think making that distinction oh. explains why the same woman will be more take charge at work or in the public sphere, but might be perfectly happy to listen and uh, comply in the private sphere. Well, there, there, there's another aspect to this too, in that, uh, as I've mentioned, I use some of this. Now, some I, I use erotic hypnosis principles with my lover, and there, you know, it's what we do with it afterwards, uh, you know, doesn't, doesn't go outside of the house. Mm -hmm. But I also use many of the same principles, many of the same sensations and, and steps. We don't go as far. We keep the interactions at the hypnotic level. Mm -hmm. uh, and even with an ordinary client, someone who, you know, I, I, I'm not going to have sex with, mm -hmm. with. she yep. doesn't want to have sex with me. There's no, you know, we, we know ahead of time that yep. the, in the real physical world, nothing's going to happen. Mm -hmm. But in her imagination, that's okay. Mm -hmm. and, it, and, and a first step towards that is sitting there in a chair, fully dressed, obeying the commands of this guy she's just met. How does she feel about that? And mm -hmm. that's something that I want to explore for an ordinary hypnosis client mm -hmm. as well. Yep. Because unless she's totally comfortable with obeying my commands, mm -hmm. she's not going to have the experiences she needs to to get what she wants. So mm -hmm. whether we're doing whether I'm doing this with a lover that I'm going to end up in bed with or an ordinary client mm -hmm. who wants to deal with some habit, uh, th the same things happen. Mm -hmm. I, it's, it's, yep. 
It's no it's, different. I have a, a, a sound bite that I use. And, and I've, I've tried this out on a lot of different women and have never, other than understanding one of the words, uh, I've never had any objection. Everybody says, yeah, that's right. Hmm. And I'd say, what, you know, what do women want in a man? Mm-hmm. And uh, my way of saying it is that women want a man who's emotionally strong enough that they can feel safe surrendering to. Mm-hmm. And I, I will ask this question in, in public settings mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, in a, in a group of people. And uh, often there's a misunderstanding of what surrender means mm-hmm. to me, to some women, they're, they're, default interpretation is, oh, that means giving up, uh, abandoning their free will, losing their sense of identity. And I say, no, it means letting go and allowing yourself to participate fully in the process. And then, mm-hmm. then they, oh, that kind of surrender. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's what I want. So uh, there are many pieces of this. And off in, in a group, I, I, I will say, just as an example of a suggestion, I'll say, you know, Mary, a lot of people tell me that they find listening to my voice really relaxing. And, you know, I get, yeah, it is. That's cool. So um, there, there's a lot of pieces of this. You know, I'm, I'm not going to give them orgasms in front of a group of their girlfriends. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of pieces of what goes into erotic hypnosis Mm -hmm. that I'm quite comfortable doing openly in a public setting. And uh, women and men occasionally Mm -hmm. uh, are are comfortable responding to it. Well, you you can kind of imagine that uh, someone who is in a private office with you, even a totally professional office for something like smoking cessation, the lighting is going to be dimmer than a dentist's office. The cushioning on the chair is going to be softer than at the doctor's office. You'll be talking to them in a very attentive, a soft, positive, and supportive way. In some cases, you'll be talking to them much more affectionately than they get from their own partners. Even in a completely professional <laughs> context, sometimes there's a blanket on yes. them. You're you're speaking softly in support of them, in support of their better side, in support of their best feelings and their best thoughts. And even without any intent whatsoever, you can see how some of the warmer or even erotic feelings might arise in such a context. Absolutely. Is that, that goes to uh, something I, I, I love to talk about. In, uh, in English, uh, we, t- we use the word to pay, the verb to pay. We pay money for something. We pay money for a service. If we go see a hypnotist, we pay money for that service. But even more primal, we pay attention. Mm -hmm. Attention is the primal currency. When most kids act up, they're acting up to get attention. And that 
transitions to adults. People are starved for attention. And the, the situation you just described is, is really common. There are people, I'm sure you've met them, who will come to a hypnosis session without any real problem. They just want the attention. Mm -hmm. There's another thing I wanted to share about that something where erotic hypnosis is very different. Okay. There's a state that uh, Pavlov discovered, and he discovered it quite by accident. He was practicing, he would condition dogs and observe how long the conditioning lasts and how deeply ingrained it was. Uh, at one point, there was a flood. Moscow's on a river, and you know, it's springtime when the ice breaks, there are terrible floods. There was a flood and literally the dogs were rescued with literally seconds to spare. They were, you know, the, the, there was, I, I, the, my image of the scene is like there, there was this half an inch of, of air left that they had their noses in and they were paddling furiously till one of the assistants came and, and let them out of the cages. So they were terrified and at expecting death momentarily. What Pavlov found out was that all of their previous conditioning was erased. It was mm -hmm. gone. And uh, this was, he was doing this research uh, in the Stalin era and uh, the ability to take someone's conditioning and erase it, uh, they put their heads together at the state security apparatus and mm -hmm. figured out uh, some politically incorrect ways of using this. Uh, but what we've found out since then is this works with extreme pleasure as well. Hmm. That um, given orgasm, take orgasm, Mm -hmm. uh, and experience orgasm and then experience another one and a stronger one and keep doing that mm -hmm. again and again and again and again and again. And the brain melts, you collapse into a little puddle of happiness. And at that point, the mind is completely open mm -hmm. and simple commands, you know, you can't use complicated commands at a point like that, but simple commands like strong, feminine, powerful, smart, uh, empowered, hmm. things like that go right in. And the fascinating result is that all kinds of garbage that may have been in someone's life, I'm not worthy, I'm not loved, it starts to disappear. Mm -hmm. And this is something that can happen in the world of erotic hypnosis that for reasons that don't really make much sense, mm -hmm. other than the anti-sex conditioning that's been imposed upon us, uh, is, is disallowed in mm -hmm. the conventional 
therapy world. Well, you, you, you're probably familiar with the idea that vibrators were invented as a medical device as a treatment for fem- oh, yes. feminine hysteria um, or yes. uh, neurosis. Yes. So like- uh, you're basically saying the same thing, and I'm in complete agreement with you, that women with better sex mm-hmm. lives and better orgasms tend to be happier and less quote-unquote neurotic or anxious or unhappy overall. Yes. yes. You can be orgasmic or you can be neurotic, but you can't be both. Pick one. <laughs> which would you like? So now we're kind of getting into the meat of today's conversation, right. which is the really fun, yes. interesting stuff, which is how do we create right. how do we create more pleasure? And one thing that you touched upon right. earlier is that there is overlap between the erotic hypnosis world and the kink world or the fetish or the BDSM world. And again, it's probably because of all the stereotypes of hypnotists as people who tell others what to do and expect complete obedience, that um, there sometimes does seem to be a domination and submission uh, element to erotic hypnosis, um, the topic of today's conversation. So could you talk a little bit about how how that works its way into erotic hypnosis sessions or play, and also how much of the DS or domination submission aspect, do you think, is for real? And how much do you think is just playing a role? At, at the simplest level, the answer is always, because going into trance is a measure of surrender, submission. Mm-hmm. You're accepting, if I take you or Susie into trance, uh, you have agreed to obey my commands, to accept my suggestions. You have this this little out where if I tell you to do something that's really stupid, you know, uh, I want you to take a running running start at that window and dive out of it head first, you know, you're going to pop out of trance and say, no, that's stupid. Uh, I won't do it. And that our our little scene is over. so I'm, I'm constrained by what I can do, but there is still a, a, a power exchange. The, the, mm-hmm. the person who's subject, or in a, in a more gentle term, uh, my trance partner mm-hmm. has agreed to, okay, for the, for the time being, and I've done uh, hypnosis with people where we trade places, mm-hmm. where, you know, for now... They're the subject, and then we switch, and I'm the subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I go along and obey the commands and, and enjoy it. And mm-hmm. both, both are enjoyable. I've even experienced hypnotic orgasms that way, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, well, one... In my, from, 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 you asked, is it real? Well, is it, is it, uh, it usually, I mean, obviously some people will feel like they're playing along. Other people are so immersed that there's no question it's real for them. Do you find it's more common to have uh, trans partners uh, who feel like they're completely immersed in the experience and they are hanging on to your every word? Or do you find that there is often this element of you're just playing a game? Ah, ah, I understand the question you're asking mm-hmm. now. I, 
I think of that as are they actually in trance or is there still a big piece of their conscious mind that's interfering with the process? In my experience, it's not what you're doing in the moment. It's more sort of the uh, the circumstances and the environment around the session that causes the uh, trans partner to be having a hard time suspending their rational analytical mind. I use the phrase domination and submission because it's one that most people have heard of and at least they have a stereotype of what happens during a domination and submission exchange um, if they don't experience it themselves. But one phrase I usually prefer to use is uh, consensual power exchange because that phrase, consensual power exchange, encapsulates the essence of what is happening in domination and submission. Um, and, exactly. And the, the, the consensual part is the part that often isn't seen if you were to watch uh, hypnosis or in, in the kink world, BDSM scenes. And I don't know if you, Bruce, are familiar with uh, Gerald Kine or his work or the principles that he teaches. Oh, yes. Okay, so he, yes. He, yes. He, he talks about the concept of, oh, yeah, actually, Mark Cunningham is, uh, was a student of Kine, I believe. Um, well, yes, that's Kine, right. He trained with Jerry. And Gerald Kine, um, I don't know whether he invented this topic, but at least he talks a lot about the concept of the hypnotic contract. The, the hypnotic contract is usually an unspoken agreement where the hypnotist promises to uh, look out for the client's interests, to use the best of their tools, their skills, their education to help the client. And it is in consideration of that that the client then suspends their own usual analytical critical thinking and follows or obeys the hypnotist. And if the hypnotist were to break that trust or if they were not to hold up their end of the contract, then the trust is broken, rapport is broken, and hypnosis cannot continue. The only reason a volunteer or a subject or a trans partner willingly suspends their own analytical faculties to uncritically obey the hypnotist is because of that unspoken hypnotic contract where the hypnotist has the responsibility of looking after and taking care of the subjects or the trans partner's needs. Uh, the first things that I want to accomplish with a client, if I'm using conditioning with pleasure, is I want them to like hypnosis. I want them to want to be hypnotized because <laughs> if they don't want to be hypnotized, they're probably not going to come back and they're not going to get the results that they want. So I want to make sure they have a positive experience. And the way I do that is I, I want them to experience a powerful pleasure. Uh, this is the, the, the same concept as anchoring in a positive resource state that Anybody that does hypnotherapy knows about that. Mm -hmm. uh, and the essence of a positive resource state is that it has to be motivating. It has to be something that they want. It fits in the, when I talked about move towards, uh, move towards and move away, it's a strong move towards. And it has to be strong enough that it's able to overcome any 
negative stuff that comes up. They get terrified by something. We trigger that positive resource and it's, oh yeah, okay, I'm okay now. Uh, the pleasure state derives from that. It's just feeling mm -hmm. and if, if, if they're okay, like I will start with a pleasure, uh, I'll suggest just feel a pleasure. And I will suggest an example of something you might feel, joy, happiness, or pride in accomplishing something you didn't think you could do. Mm -hmm. That's usually where people start, because I, mm -hmm. I like that. It also sets the stage for them doing things they didn't think they could do. Mm -hmm. And we work on that. We work on the, the pleasure. We work on associating that pleasure with going into trance so that if they're successful in having that internal experience of pleasure, they'll associate it with going into trance because I ask them to connect the two because I'll bring them in and out of trance frequently to fractionate them. And each time I take them in, I invite them to feel that pleasure. And I will ask them, you know, if, if, if you felt that pleasure strongly smile when it, when it gets strong enough, I, I can tell from their physiology at, at light levels, I have to ask them, but that's one reason for the eyes open trance. So we can have a discussion. How did you like that? Are you comfortable feeling that pleasure in my presence? And then once they've established that pattern and they actually do like hypnosis, I'd like them, you know, I'll ask them, you know, would you like me to hypnotize you again? And if it's, if it's uh, a strong, oh yes, I love it. You know, then then we're doing fine. I know I know they're enjoying the state. I mean, hell, I love it. I go into trance when I'm working with them. So it's, for me, it's a great place. I take and work on that. Then when when that's working fine, then I'll ask them if they're comfortable making that pleasure sensual or sexual. Hmm. Most of the time, the answer is yes. Oh, that'd be fun. Uh, sometimes I get. Uh, resistance from I hardly know you and I'm not really comfortable feeling those kinds of feelings in your presence <laughs> or you're not my lover and mm -hmm. I I forbid myself I have a rule in my head that I'm not allowed to feel those feelings for anybody else mm -hmm. and you know and, and and I talk to them then it's okay well look we have we have a negotiation to make and you have a choice to make you can relax that rule and allow yourself to experience these pleasures so you can take that ability back to your lover and experience mm -hmm. them with, with that person. Or we can just not bother going down, going down this far down the pleasure route. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a choice that they make. I'm, I would never force anybody to, that, that's stupid. You can't force someone to feel pleasure. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's something that they that they want or don't mm -hmm. want, yeah. or they're they're for whatever reason they're uncomfortable with it. But we work on that. Uh, if they are comfortable with sexual pleasure, we take it and as fast or as slowly as the person is comfortable doing so, we escalate it. Mm -hmm. We build it up. We make sure they like it. Sometimes I'll do something where okay, I want you to feel that pleasure at a level three. Okay, now feel at a level four. Now go back to a level three. And so on, so that they feel that they have control. Because mm -hmm. this control thing is pretty subtle. Uh, 
once that pleasure gets strong enough and strong enough uh, so the arousal is really powerful uh, typically if if this is a person that you've experienced orgasm with or you, you've been in presence of other people who've experienced orgasms you get a sense of what's really strong pleasure then okay then and then you wait i will typically wait till the person asks oh i i want to I'm, I'm ready to experience orgasm now and then i give that command and, and most of the time it's successful right off hmm. so that once once they're able to respond with sufficiently strong pleasure then transitioning to orgasm is straightforward mm -hmm. and then the orgasm itself can be used for all sorts of things like i mentioned earlier locking in lessons of learnings mm -hmm. if they want to lock in uh even just as simple with with a lover locking in feeling that connection when you're in my presence you know mm -hmm. and i will i will make sure that that's what they want and normally it is is yes, I want to automatically, instantly, unconsciously feel that connection when I'm with you. So we work on that and connect that with the pleasure. Hmm. Well, I'm sure that many people listening right now are wondering how they could do this with their partners or whether they should even start learning how to do this with their own partners. And I, I've noticed that in the broader erotic hypnosis community, Many, if not most, practitioners of the art are not professional hypnotherapists and are often not formally trained in hypnosis, and yet, in the context of them knowing their partner and having only really that one person or a small number of people who they know um, already to hypnotize, um, nothing really seems to go awry. Um, so the, the question is... Um, do you think that someone should get training before they attempt to hypnotize, to hypnotize their partner? Like you and I, we're, we're hypnotists. We, we study hypnosis, we know the principles, and it's really fairly easy to apply what we do in a professional office into a bedroom setting. But for someone starting from scratch, um, should they get formally trained? Should they read scripts they found on the internet? What are risks? What should they be aware of? What, should, what ideas should they never accept inside their heads? Um, well, there's, there's, there's a whole lot of questions. Oh, yeah, there is. But the basic one, the, the basic one is, should they get some instruction mm -hmm. first? And I, I feel fairly strongly, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, there are regular workshops held around North America and probably in other parts of the world as well teaching basics of erotic hypnosis. I've been to several, uh, a weekend, a weekend is plenty. Mm -hmm. uh, there are also uh, erotic hypnosis conferences held. There's, they come and go, but there, there's at least four or five or six that are held around the country, uh, mostly in the States. There's been at least one here in Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, that offer instruction. They have tracks for beginners, they have tracks for advanced people, and they offer a context where people interested in this, call it a sport, uh, can interact with each other and play. Mm -hmm. they, can, they can experience it. And there are people who like 
all sorts of strange things. There are people who like to be taken through scary scenes because it's, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, this is the purpose of showing horror movies to teenagers at drive-in movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get to feel some intense emotion while you're snuggled up next to somebody that you like. Uh, there are people who, you know, all, all, all kinds of, of differing desires and stuff. And it's, it's easy to find someone else who wants to experience the same kind of thing and trade back and forth. So, uh, my advice to someone who wants to do this, there's also a couple of good books out. The, the, uh, best one and most accessible is mind play and the mind play study guide by Mark Wiseman. It's available on Amazon and, and some bookstores actually carry it physically. Uh, a great a great way to get started, and it'll give enough information that you'll be able to find these conferences. Mm-hmm. Fantastic, thank you. Um, in my professional experience, because I do have much more experience working in a hypnosis office than I do with erotic hypnosis, but in that context, I'll sometimes see clients for erectile dysfunction. Um, I had a client once who had an inability to orgasm rooted in religious shame, and I've seen some other sexual issues as well. Um, In that experience, I have found that shame is at the root of, if not all, then most sexual inhibitions. And as well, um, shame is at the root of poor sexual experiences in general, and even outside of sexual context, shame is at the root of so much anxiety. Um, earlier, when you expressed the, that many people have the idea they're not good enough or not anything enough, I rephrased it as that's, well, that's shame. That's um, the cognition yes. that goes with the feeling of shame. Um, could you uh, talk a little bit about your work around breaking through shame and on the other side of shame, once you break through it, is self-acceptance, perhaps self-compassion, even self-love. This gets into the area that I I use some some labels there. It's taboos, Mm -hmm. uh, boundaries, and limiting beliefs. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell a little story about a simple taboo, mm-hmm. uh, because breaking taboos has enormous power. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was working with a woman a couple of years ago and got feedback from her just last week. So the story is quite fresh. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was teaching her to say it for one point. I, don't even remember how it arose, but she was unable to say the vernacular word for female genitals that we same word we use to to talk about kittens. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was unable to utter that word out loud. Mm-hmm. You know, I asked her, "Well, just say the word," and she she couldn't say it. Mm-hmm. So I spent an hour and a half with her, supportive, not not really in trance, but just being extremely supportive helping effective emotionally holding her hand until she got comfortable enough to to say the word uh and then we went on about about our lives uh i saw her again for a session just last week 
And I asked her to compare the, the woman she was before that session and the woman she was afterwards. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I also asked her how often in her, her regular life uh, has she found an occasion to use that word? Mm-hmm. And she admitted, well, practically never. Uh, a couple of times, but almost not at all. But then I asked her, so and has anything changed? And she said, yes. I'm significantly more confident, mm-hmm. and I find that I'm able to speak up for myself in ways that I couldn't before that. Mm-hmm. So just coaxing her through, being able to say that word out loud, was that... that it was like that was a a, a, a boulder mm-hmm. in the middle of a road. Yep. And we pushed the boulder out of the way, and the road led to a whole lot of places that she had never dreamed of. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I asked her, I also asked her, if I had told you before the session that, you know, if if you practice and learn to say this word out loud, you'll mm-hmm. find yourself with a lot more confidence and you'll be able to stand up for yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very likely that she would have, and, and she agreed with this, that she would have not believed me and said, what, what a, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. Mm-hmm. The, the two have nothing to do with each other. Mm-hmm. And yet for her and for the ordinary person, that may well be true for yeah. her. It, unblocked a huge amount and the other techniques dealing with boundaries limiting beliefs are mm-hmm. analogous well i i, I want to just kind of take that example and broaden the scope of um how shame could limit a person or keep them small and then taking one small act to break through the shame can expand them in so many ways uh, I don't remember the yes. name. I, I'm trying not to Google right now, but I think it was the founder of REBT, uh, Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, who invented something called um, the shame attacking exercise. And there are different things you could do as a shame attacking exercise, but it's something like that. Now, for the client that you uh, described, it was shameful for her to say a slang term for female genitalia with a professional behind closed doors. So that threshold is enough for her that once she can do it and see the world did not fall apart and she's still acceptable and she's still okay and everything is still in the right order, that all of a sudden she can't hold on to the idea that parts of her own body or parts of a woman's body are bad. Um, and uh, there's so much I want to say, but um, other examples of similar exercises are going to a pizza restaurant and ordering sushi intentionally. And then once you do that, you realize that the world does not fall apart because you make a mistake. It's okay not to be perfect. Right. And, um, you know, your shame caused so much suffering for no reason. That's, I mean, shame right. is a topic we could talk about for a long time. And it, it is an yeah. emotion that is almost wholly detrimental. It, it keeps people limited. It robs people of their own humanity. Because the word that your client yeah. wouldn't say is a part of her that we cannot deny and a part of her that gives her pleasure, that makes her feel good, or at least has the capacity to make her feel good. 
I like uh, Brene Brown's definition of shame. Shame is a belief, a deeply rooted belief that if people knew X about me, whatever mm -hmm. X is, they would instantly abandon and reject me. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I worked directly with this with a young man who grew up, let's see, he grew up poor. Uh, he had trouble passing courses at university and was failing them. Uh, he spent a period of his life where he was addicted to porn and would stay up all night spending all the money he had on porn uh, and, and something else. Uh, oh, and he was really shy. Mm -hmm. So I had him, based on that definition, I had him go out to malls, open public areas, and look around for somebody who was sort of sitting around with nothing to do mm -hmm. and make up a little story, say maybe I'm in an improv group and I have an assignment to share something with you. Do I have your permission to share it? And, you know, if they said no, I said, move on. If they say yes, go ahead and share it. And <clears throat> his deep belief was that as soon as people found out about this, they would reject him. Mm -hmm. And, of course, what actually happened was people were aghast and they said, wow, I would never, I, I'm really impressed with your courage at being able to talk about that. Really, congratulations! I'm I'm mm -hmm. impressed with you, mm -hmm. and I, you know, he just kept doing that, and I, I I was pushing him. He kept doing that until it was the the shame disappeared. It wasn't there anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, here's a fair standard, I think, to hold yourself to when you're questioning: Should this be something that I'm ashamed of? Should this be something that um, I should feel bad about? If your best friend did the same thing or said the same thing in public or didn't do something they were supposed to do, if your best friend did it, would you look down on them? Would you judge them for it? And if not, then that's the standard. That's a fair standard. Mm -hmm. There's no reason to treat yourself worse than everyone else in the right. world. It doesn't make you a better person. It doesn't add to the happiness in the world. It diminishes the happiness in the world if you um, treat yourself to, uh, or worse than, than, than everyone else. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a standard that I would hold in open discussion with, with, with someone. Mm -hmm. But in my mind, uh, I would be asking the question, uh, if, if the answer is, oh, I would totally reject them if they did that. Mm -hmm. uh, I would be asking myself, hmm, is, is, does this person have the right friends? Well, that, that is true. I'm speaking very, I guess I'm speaking to you, so I assume that you yeah. choose your friends carefully, yeah. <laughs> whereas not, not everyone right. has... Uh, um, no, the luxury of being don't. able to choose their friends carefully. Yes, that that's a good point to make. <clears throat> so this question is about toxic masculinity. And you had talked about taboo and how breaking through taboo can be beneficial. Well, it seems like the topic yes. of healthy masculinity, how to be a man or being okay with being a man, uh, it almost seems taboo at the same time that there's so much talk about toxic 
masculinity. And I want to break that taboo for the same reasons that you want to break taboos. Because the fact is you are a man. I am a man. Half the world's population is a man or a future man. And most of them are decent people. It's unfair to look at a small group of so-called toxic males and then paint the, the, the half the human population with the same brush. So um, the questions are, and there are, just like in so many of these questions, many points to be made. Um, what do you think healthy masculinity consists of? What do you think sets the masculine apart from the feminine? And that could be a subset of your answer to the first question. Um, and during sex or erotic hypnosis, how do you find healthy masculinity interplaying with healthy femininity? And just for the sake of simplicity, let's just, mm -hmm. we'll talk within a <clears throat> heteronormative framework. I, I know that this is such a huge topic. You could get a PhD in gender studies if you wanted right. to, but within a heteronormative <laughs> framework. Yeah, I don't want to go there. No. The masculine, well, I, I gave you my sound bite for what women want. Mm -hmm. A woman wants a in a man, a man to be emotionally strong enough that she feels safe surrendering. The safe is the important word mm -hmm. there. Now, obviously, there's another part that she has to want that particular man as well. Um, what a man wants uh, is real masculinity, as I understand it needs a purpose in life that's um, generally uh, independent of relationship. That's a purpose. You want to run a business, you want to be a good hockey player, you want to play golf, or build houses, whatever, whatever it is, uh, some sort of purpose. Uh, so the purpose is important. Uh, in terms of a woman, a man wants to be able to feel strong and masculine and also wants to protect. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the primal urges to protect the woman and to know that he's providing pleasure. Mm -hmm. That's why I... Uh, you know, when when my lover orgasms, that that feeds my energy. Mm -hmm. That that's that's powerful for me, because I know that I have given her pleasure, and that's mm -hmm. that's a primal need for me. Identified a phrase for my personal calling is to make the world a better place by helping the people in it be better people, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and. What I'm doing with the relationship that I've established is I'm living that purpose, but I also want to share it with others. <laughs> so those those are the the yeah. to me the the essence of being masculine mm -hmm. and accepting that. Hmm. I have I have a metaphor that I use when I get when when things are getting hot and heavy, we're really turned on. I use the metaphor of my lion mm -hmm. coming forth. Hmm. You know, the king, king of the beasts, the strong, powerful. I mean, look at me. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 76 years old. I don't, I don't have 
uh, an 18 inch neck and, and I don't weigh 300 pounds of linebacker, but you know, I'm, I'm still a man. You've and got the beard, your silver Fox. Out, it's awesome. <laughs> it's, uh, my lion comes out, her pleasure comes out and we feed on each other. <laughs> she responds to my masculinity uh, with with surrender and mm-hmm. desire, uh, and powerful pleasure, mm-hmm. and that that just well, the, the, this, <clears throat> that does amazing things. This conversation has to be had because pornographic films yeah. do not represent what happens in most people's bedrooms. Do not usually represent not healthy sexual relations, and we don't really like. Thankfully, most of us are not voyeurs, so we don't have a chance to look into, into other people's bedrooms. It's during these kinds of conversations that we can spread ideas about, and then have people listen to and then right. talk about how right. healthy masculine yeah. and feminine behaviors interplay and how there is such a thing as healthy masculinity yeah and a a piece i'll add to that at at my age 76 i am having the best sex of my life in three quarters of a century and it keeps getting better so uh you know for don't don't allow you know your your 45 year old client to figure that the prime of their life is over and it's all downhill from here. Mm-hmm. That is total baloney. Hmm. Well, I, and the same is true for women. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, Things like vaginal dryness is, is a myth. Huh. It, it's, it's real, but it can well, easily be reversed by you, relationship. You would be surprised how many women I've met in my personal life, who thought they couldn't have orgasms during sex, who thought they didn't enjoy sex or kink or certain sexual acts. And it just turns out that no one really did it that well before, or no one really cared enough about their pleasure before. Once they meet someone who cares about their pleasure, who cares about being a good partner, then all of a sudden, the sexual problems go away. I mean, it's weird to me that there's medical... Yeah, terminology for women's sexual problems when it's really the partner who has a huge matter who say it matter. Right, right there. What you said—that's the essence of authentic masculinity. Hmm. And when you and I, as men, accept that Mm -hmm. and genuinely care about our partners, Mm -hmm. then we're living masculinity and we have absolutely nothing to be ashamed of and the, that we're living it the way it was biologically meant to be lived and we we care about their orgasms we care about their sexual pleasure we care about their happiness this is not like um i mean in romantic comedy movies men often i think care too much about things that don't primarily appeal to women here in this conversation, we're talking about things that primarily appeal to women. And um, I, 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 I just want to go back to the topic of t- toxic masculinity, because toxic masculinity tries to paint men as being inherently destructive um, and 
inherently uh, harmful or hurtful. And what we're talking about is instead healthy masculinity says that men are inherently protective. And you said also pursuing a purpose. I would add to that um, inherently creative. If you want to see healthy masculinity, it's a man uh, protecting those he cares about, um, sometimes even protecting strangers, um, or speaking out in favor or support of strangers, and it's a man creating something in this world in order to make this world a better place. And it doesn't have to be physical, um, or it doesn't have to be like like construction. It could be art. It could be literature. It could be music. It could be a business. It could be ideas. It could be an invention. It 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 it, it could right. be a lecture series. But when you know, when when a man feels like himself, he's probably creating something or protecting something or pursuing something that is meaningful. My next question is, if you could list a few things that you wish everyone could know about sex or relationships, what would they be? One item is that for people to be aware uh, that hypnosis, erotic hypnosis, can intensify romantic connection and sensual sensations to levels that most of the population of the planet cannot even imagine. Hmm. Okay. Anything That's else on the list? Powerful. It is. Oh, yeah. Sexual energy is the same thing as life energy, they're one and the same that anything, any messages, subtle or otherwise, that you hear from other sources, um, it, 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 believe it at your peril. They're, mm -hmm. they're one and the same. Um, <clears throat> if we have time, I'll give you a little story that relates to that. Sure. Free the sexual. Uh, one one of the, the positive things, what does erotic hypnosis do beyond just have good sex mm -hmm. leading particularly a woman but men as well mm -hmm. to sexual freedom where their 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 inhibitions <clears throat> it's not that their inhibitions are eliminated what happens as we grow and mature in, in life we're given rules and boundaries people tell us oh you should not do this you should do this you should not do this this is the boundary and we accept their definition of boundaries of ourselves without examining them uh, to me sexual freedom means examining those boundaries around sex and making our own choice about them uh, we may choose narrower boundaries than we were told by the world around us in some areas, wider boundaries in others. It, it doesn't really matter. What's important in establishing sexual freedom is that we examine all of those boundaries and make our own choices, make informed choices for ourselves. Um, another important one is relationships in general start by accident hmm. and they live by design that it is possible to design relationship to say 
I want this in our relationship. And if two people are in accord, you know, it's a negotiation and consent. If both people want it, they can make it happen. A good relationship that lasts is one that has two people cooperating to make it exist. Mm -hmm. It's not something that just happens. Uh, and the last one is may not seem like it has anything to do with erotic hypnosis, but it's sort of the, a, a, a guideline for my life. Freedom means taking responsibility for your own choices. Some people see responsibility as, as a bad thing, as a way to limit a person. But if you look at the people who are the most free to do as they wish or go as they please, they tend to have the most responsibility. I also want to go back to um, one of the points you made, which is that sex energy and life energy are intertwined. And both uh, thinkers in the East, um, as well as Western thinkers like Freud, uh, believed that the two are intermingled. And I know Freud often gets a bad rap for thinking a lot and writing a lot about sex. Um, but um, let's pull out the message that um, the libido is not just the sex drive. Let me, let me tell the little uh, short story that I, I had about it. Um, uh, I have a woman friend who is a performer. Uh, I've worked with her in hypnosis. At one point, she had an insight. We were working with, you know, what's this like? What do you have energy and so on? And at one point, she realized with a, with a you know, a, a eyes wide open aha moment. Mm -hmm. Wow. I imagined myself in two different situations. One in a formal gown, singing operatic arias in front of a large concert hall, and in another, in a a wild, totally unfettered sexual orgy. And the the aha realization she had was, oh my God, it's the same energy, the energy that I use to pump, you know, once, once a singer has mastered the actual art of producing pretty noises with their voice, the rest is a matter of projecting emotion mm -hmm. energetically. Um, and that's, that's what the difference is between good and great. And she realized, wow, it's the same energy. Mm. And Later, she, we, I, I helped her come up with a, uh, a structure for a workshop that she's actually done a couple of times, where the idea is to take, to envision channeling unlimited energy from the universe through the head, down to the genitals, back up to the heart, transforming it in the heart and projecting it out as whatever emotion the the piece or performance calls for uh and at, at one point uh she got laryngitis the day she was supposed to do this at a conference and i had to stand in and 
do the trance because she created a sophisticated trance to take people to have people actually have this experience to take it into whatever kind of performance they wanted to do. I applied it to the performance that I was doing, presenting this trance to a room full of people. And it was, it was, it was amazing. I was, I had this imagery of unlimited energy flowing through me to my genitals, to my heart and projecting it out to the group of people there, getting them involved in the process step by step having this experience and it was powerful it was one of the most powerful group trances i have ever done so i'm a believer sexual energy as far as i'm concerned and life energy are one and the same thing there is no difference fantastic thank you my next question is what is the wildest story that you can tell about erotic hypnosis. Some of us put on a hypnotic or erotic hypnosis demonstration in front of a group of people. Uh, And the scene that I created was to have two women, both of whom had already learned how to experience hypnotic orgasm. I had them sit facing one another took them into trance and had them hold hands and look in each other's eyes. So I built a connection for them and I gave each of them the same instruction. And here's the instruction I gave them. I want you to feel what she is feeling. The other woman Mm -hmm. only 10% stronger. So it was a positive feedback loop. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I gave them both that instruction and then I was just in the background giving suggestions of feeling pleasure. I added in another command that they were not allowed to orgasm until I released them. Mm -hmm. So that meant that the arousal would ramp up way beyond the point where they would normally achieve orgasm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they did that. Uh, it was it was pretty wild because mm-hmm. uh, they're there they're holding hands mm-hmm. looking in each other's eyes which is a very powerful way of exchanging energy mm-hmm. and it was it was palpable the people even people in the audience 25 feet away could feel it mm-hmm. uh, and then I released them and the explosion was was amazing and went on for quite a while and then, and then I brought him down to let him cool off and relax. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, one thing that I, I heard from somewhere and just kept saying it after I heard it, it's the biggest sex organ in a human being's body is the brain. Exactly. Yes. We have massive craniums one, for a good reason. Yes. One, one thing that I do for a show like that where I'm demonstrating erotic hypnosis is I will invite a member of the audience to come up and just sit on a chair next to the subject. This is using a technique, if you've ever seen Erickson's Mondi tapes where mm-hmm. Nick and Mondi are there, uh, it's to feel what's going on. And I just invite somebody from the audience to sit next to the subject 
and just notice what they notice because they're going to pick up the energy. And typically they'll be blown away at how powerful it is. That, whoa, you know, even, even people who are normally oblivious to energetic things feel this. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful way of getting across the notion of this isn't just a trick. I'm not inviting mm-hmm. people to pretend this is actually happening. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Thank you. The last question that I have is um, that I understand you've recently moved out of the city and you were planning to be teaching erotic hypnosis, or I don't know if you would use that term. You are practicing to teach enhanced intimacy. You are planning to kind of practice, um, but this whole COVID-19 thing uh, kind of uh, delayed the plans for a while. Um, what do you have planned next? Well, the uh, COVID-19 thing caught us. Literally, I was within days of putting down a deposit on office space. Mm-hmm. So it was it, it, it put a stop to that. Uh, right now, my next project is to create a pilot, which I hope to launch at the beginning of June. Uh, I'm titling it Reconnect With Him Now. Hmm. This it's is for women. Targeted at, it's for women who are feeling uncomfortable, that uncomfortable anxiety where it feels like their partner is pulling away from them. Hmm. It's, it, it's, it's not at all unusual. Uh, a lot of women experience that. And what we'll be teaching is techniques uh, of connecting. Or we won't be doing explicit hypnosis but there'll be basically some hypnotic language that I'll be teaching them ways of learning how to be vulnerable and connected through the process. So that'll be, uh, um, coming up soon. I'm putting the course together now. It'll be an online course with some interaction with me. There'll be some Mm -hmm. recorded stuff and then direct interaction with me. I, I know how, how scary it is for a woman to to feel that it's oh my god i worked so hard to build this connection and now he's i don't know what's going on but he seems like he's running away mm-hmm. uh and this this is to help deal with that uh i'm also setting up a, a virtual hypnosis practice and i may uh since this is all virtual anyway uh, I may bring uh, Toronto Hypnosis Explorers back to life. Nice. I just do what I used to do in my living room mm-hmm. from my living room over the internet. Huh. And with uh, with Zoom and the like, we can put people into breakout rooms and, and they can do practices with each other. This has been another episode of the Hypnosis Nerd Podcast. Joining me on this call was Bruce Anderson, who you can find at www.turnontoronto.com. I'm Luke Chow from the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis in Toronto, Canada, where we make hypnosis make sense.